Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IRG founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Very warm welcome to everybody around the world that is joining us. The guest of today is Karis Bright. Karis, well, for many of the viewers, won't need any introduction, <laughs> but uh, let me just uh, summarize some highlights in her career. Over the past 15 years, she has been uh, the chief marketing officer of uh, ICI Paints uh, with Dulux, later for, merged into Axel Noble, Virgin, Virgin Mobile, British Airways, and now at uh, the BBC, you're the chief customer officer. I mean, it's, uh, it's an incredible track record and we've worked quite closely together over the years and I've seen the impact that you made uh, in the companies uh, that you led, the, the, the marketing and demand side of the business. And that's really impressive. A true honor to have you uh, in our webinar today. And I really look forward to diving in straight into the content, into leadership lessons and everything. But let me start by asking you, where are you and how are you, Karis? Oh, thank you, Frank, and thank you for your really kind words. And I'm very well in the context of living through really, really extraordinary times, but uh, I feel very privileged. I have space, I have outside space, good friends and family, and, and health-wise very, very well. So I, I hope everyone on the call is in a similar situation. Let's, let's dive in on this question. So, so we have COVID. Uh, you're a leader in a very large organization. What, what have you learned? What leadership lesson did you learn through this COVID experience? I think there are three things that I've reflected on that I think I've really learned. And some of it is about how the BBC responded and being part of that. And some of it is my personal experience of, of leading teams through this, this process. I have to say, as a leader of a big organisation, this situation that we find ourselves in, first and foremost, has unequivocally connected us all to why we exist. So the purpose of the BBC to inform, to educate and entertain, we have to broadcast, we have to let the world know what's going on, we have to connect uh, people to the facts, to the changing situations. We also have to entertain, let's face it, um, times are difficult and we all need a bit of escapism. So we've got a massive role to keep up the spirit of the mood of the nation, bring the nation together. And in the UK in particular, when schools closed, um, we found a unique role in actually educating the country. Um, we have a lot of education resources and we put our talent to play. And we had to do all of that with the vast majority of people working from home, like many people, only 10% of the BBC were in buildings with 21,000 people. So the vast majority of our organization was at home. And we had to pivot really fast to make sure we could deliver all of those things. But it just connected us all to why we exist, what really matters. Yeah. Because in an organization like the BBC with politics and competitors and many, many external influences, it just cuts through and has connected us to why we really, really exist. So that's sort of rooting us to what really matters and when the chips are down, how you choose to focus your time and energy and why we're all here. It also made me feel very, really proud to be part of an organisation like the BBC at such a difficult time and quite privileged to be on the inside to a degree of some of the situations as they were unfolding. So it connected us to our purpose in a way that is really difficult with all of the external influences that are going on. The noise, it just cut through the noise, I think, of being in a business. The second thing is, wow, could we simplify when we had to? <laughs> could we cut the bureaucracy when we had to? Could we break down silos when we had to? And A, we were all unified, we all knew what we had to do, and we all wanted to make it happen. And I think as an organization, we're big, we're complex, like I'm sure the organizations that many people are in. And we just learned that you absolutely can radically simplify what you do, remove bureaucracy, get things done, make decisions. 
And that's been quite important to the confidence of our organisation, actually, um, to believe we can do these things. We can be simple and fast yeah. and agile. And I think we'd lost the belief that we could do that. And I think the third thing is probably a very personal one. It's kind of reminded me of the power of human connection, but probably not in the way that people think, not that you suddenly miss being able to be with people and touch people and, uh, and, and have different kinds of conversations. For me, particularly in the early stages, I've never felt more connected to the teams and the organisation. I was having many more conversations, seeing many more of my teams yeah. far more frequently and importantly, seeing into their lives because we're all in our living rooms, our bedrooms, our kitchens. I've learned more about my team's families um, because there is a wander in the background and say hello. The challenges my teams face with young children because you're living in their, you're working in their lives. And I think it's connected us in a really powerful way. We were holding a call for five, all of my team, 500 of my team. And we'd asked different people from the team to talk about, share their experience. So people caring with young children or with elderly parents or flat sharing. And we were just trying to boost people's spirits and let people know we're all in difficult situations, but it's all okay. We can all find our own way. And I was listening to my team's talk and I was really inspired by it. And just to the end of the call, um, I just shared something which I probably wasn't expecting to share. And I told them that my father had gone into hospital. Of course, we couldn't visit him. And I just said that I was finding this personally really, really hard. And I was finding I was having to get energy from different places and take some time out, go for lots of long walks. And it was just the end of a call. The feedback I had from that, and mostly in a way... <laughs> made me feel a bit bad because people said we suddenly realize you're a human being and you're our leader and we see you and respect you but it really we know that you're living lives like the rest of us and the pouring out I had of offers of support of help but just people who said to me thank you for sharing with that it now makes me feel better that I am okay to take a bit of time out in my day and I'm not alone in feeling like that and it probably shouldn't surprise us but it really did surprise me that the power of that human connection and just being a bit more humble and open with the team, it's connected us, I think, in ways that um, probably would never have happened had this situation not have existed. So we identify sometimes with a role, like, for example, as a parent, and you forget that, and you, you know, you want to be, I want to behave like a good father. And, and you forget that actually the most important thing you bring as a father is is not your role as a father but the human being you are yeah. and the same is true for leaders i see many people that climb the ranks and then think they need to behave differently whereas the biggest value they can bring is just bring themselves their, their true yeah. authentic selves yeah no I, I love it and i completely relate to that so Karis, when we have we've prepared this uh, this webinar this this conversation and and, and so basically in, in our conversation, we, we distilled five key characteristics that, that, that have helped you, you know, be effective as a leader. Let's go through them one by one. You, you want to start, Karis? I'll have a go. And um, I'm not sure that anything I will say will be that original, which always feels a little bit scary. But I guess, I mean, I've been around for a long time, right? And as you said, I've for 15 years been a chief marketing officer and I've done that in, in four or five very different industries and very different cultures and organisations. And I think that's helped me, I think, focus on a few key things that I thought might be worth sharing. And I think the first thing that's really, as I reflect, served me really, really well is I think I'm innately quite a curious person. Um, I'm a scientist by training and I'm actually probably a little bit too much interested in other people's businesses. Um, but I've always had a fascination for businesses, for different business models, how things work, why they work, how businesses make money. Why do people behave in the way that they behave? Why do customers behave in the way that they behave? And I think that enthusiasm and innate curiosity has really, really served me well to try and really distill down how do things work? Also, a curiosity, I think, probably more importantly, in people and the people that run businesses. So the teams that I'm part of or might maybe leading. And that curiosity is not just what they're doing in their job, but I'm interested in what their story is, what, why they are doing the job they're doing, where they've come from. 
it's quite extraordinary. We had a, an exercise in the BBC quite recently where the, the new top team were, were sharing our stories. And my, ex, my assumptions about where the leaders have come from proved to be, in every case, completely unfounded, that people's journeys in their careers were very different than I had thought. And it just made me see them in different ways as more complete individuals. But also I'm very curious about what people are up to, what they're wanting to do now, what they're leading for, what matters to them. Uh, what are they loving about their job in the organization? What gets in the way? And then critically, I'm always looking for what can I do to help? Um, so everyone wants to have an impact. People are trying to do great things. And if I am in an organization and new into an organization, I'm always looking for well, what can I do to help? How is my role going to help you achieve what you're going to achieve? There's a good chance that if I do something that helps you, you're going to feel good about uh, my life inside the organization. So I think that curiosity has served me really well. And in particular, the power of a good question. Um, I think as leaders, we often think we're often there for answers, right? And at some point, you do need to have some good answers, but don't ever underestimate the power of a really, really good question. Think about the question. I would often, if I were joining a new organization, have three or four common questions I would ask everybody. And then I would look for some of the connections that, that I could sort of build on. Of course, we now want to know, we want to know which three questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're often about, well, if, if I'm trying to quickly get um, an understanding of an organization, simple what what makes us really good what makes us really good and really strong what really gets in the way and what could i do to solve it in my role what do you want me to do um, so I, and then there's a few others around it but i often start with those kind of first three just and but you have to ask it of a lot of people so not just three or four people and throughout the organization and and often not where you think the power might reside um, but just building up that picture, you, you can often get very quickly a sense of the organi organizations often know what they're good at and what their strengths are. They know what the issues are and people aren't backwards in telling you what they want you to do differently. And um, I found that really, really sort of really helpful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned curiosity as the first. It's actually one of the five attitudes of um, a model that we call the real growth or the Da Vinci growth CMO. Uh, it's, it's a model we developed uh, together with uh, Spencer Stewart, the, the, the world's largest uh, CMO headhunter. And, uh, and, and, and in our leadership program, we unpacked that and we, and we looked at what are the behaviors and the attitudes that come with that. And, and one of them was very, that very clearly stood out was humility. Like you need to be humble yeah, if you're curious, you don't put yourself above others. And, and I think that mindset is, uh, is, is inviting so much learning from others, exactly as you said. Yeah. I'm sure many people are familiar with Stephen Covey's The Sort of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But the one that's always resonated with me is seek first to understand before you're understood. And all too often we go into places, into meetings with wanting to be understood, to have our agenda understood and just sitting back and first of all, try and work out what's going on around here, really seeking to understand and to listen. And I know in the BBC, um, I joined um, at the beginning of the summer and the BBC is quite quiet over the summer. In August, a lot of people go on holiday and um, things sort of wind down a little bit. And I had just started. So I decided to just go on a bit of a trip. I was focusing on the nations and regions of the UK. So I went on a bit of a tour to Scotland, to Ireland, to Wales, um, and into some of the regions just to talk with the teams there. And that's not the power base of the BBC, but I just wanted to just quickly, I thought I've got some time. I may not have the time again so quickly. Let's just go out and meet people. It did actually prove to be incredibly insightful, but what I didn't quite underestimate, what I didn't know at the time was the impact that it had on the organization the fact that I did it. Um, most people say, you've been here in your first six weeks of Scotland. Uh, people don't come in their first six years. And I had chosen to do that. And um, uh, it actually has had a really lasting mark. But in a way, <laughs> I went there really early, really start. They feel that they kind of mattered. And um, uh, that sort of, that curiosity, but also thinking through how do I bring the organization to get to know me and with me quite early has proved to be important. 
So, so, so the carrier's recipe. Yeah. <laughs> Curiosity is the first one, ticking the box. What, what, what else? I think the second thing for me is, is context. And I think context is kind of everything. Businesses have history. Teams have histories. Things can be quite complicated. And I think um, one thing I've learned is the better you understand the context that you're operating in, the better the choices are that you're going to make on what you choose to do. And that context isn't always obvious. It sometimes can be quite nuanced and you have to get beneath the surface of it if you really want to, to have the right kind of impact. I'll give you an example of, um, as I reflect back, something that worked, I think, really well at British Airways. In the run-up to me joining British Airways, I went and met all of the former marketing leaders of British Airways, and there have been many. <laughs> Lots of people have been through British Airways and some great, big, powerful people. And I actually went to see all of them. And actually, most people don't ever do this. I think there's probably a bit of an insecurity about not wanting to meet someone who's done your job before. And, but I just went and saw all of them. And I wanted to know two things in particular. What can you tell me about how to succeed? I'm an outsider coming in. Tell me a bit about the British Airways, the culture. I was also asking them, what do they wish they'd done? You know, we often as leaders leave thinking, if I had my time again, I'd focus on doing this. And that's, a, I found to be a really good question to ask people, what do you wish you'd done? And I learned some magic from Jill McDonald that I then applied. And that gave me a bit of a, of a foundation. But then I, when I got into the role, uh, I decided I needed to do a bit of a strategy project. Um, there was a lot that needed to happen, but I chose not to commission new work, but just to look at work that already existed, but through a new lens. And luckily, they're not short of insight though. 42 segmentations existed in British Airways. I did a segmentation of segmentations, which appealed to me. And we decided to build on work. I found work that people had done before, such as Jill McDonald, that had been sat in a drawer, no one hadn't seen the light of day. And actually, all the answers are there, right? Now, we were five years on and 10 years on, so we did look at it through a slightly updated lens. We built this programme of work, this body of work, and when I took it out to the leaders in the organisation and presented it, even though some of it was quite challenging, actually, it, it connected really fast and was accepted really fast. And the one bit of feedback I had, I consistently had, was it's really great that you've built on what we knew. Yeah, no, it's... You already knew it. And, it was, and it, I did it very purposefully because people say it's a proud organisation. They're experts. They'll tell you they like outsiders, but they don't really like outsiders. They don't really want, but it was a bit of an insight into the pride in the organization and very clearly positioned the work on, you know this stuff, right? It's your work. And we've just tried to look at it through a slightly different lens. And it meant, I think the work just happened much faster than had it felt like an outsider's perspective inside the organization. I really like that. I even, I've started my career in market research and I played with the idea at the end of working for big agencies to start my own agency with just doing that. So we don't do any new research because if only you knew what you know, yeah. because it's often dispersed in the organization, there always is a, it's not a sexy thing to say we're going to work with exist. And it's so effective. Totally recognize. I really, really like that, that lesson. What was quite interesting is the organization changed every two years. And so people changed, things were lost. And in fact, some of the really magic uh, work that existed didn't live in the organization anymore. Agencies came to me and said, we did this piece of work for you and it never happened. And so in meeting out and reaching out, I'd say to people, can you send it to me? And actually I got BA stuff sent back to me from agencies that no one could quite find. And some of it was just brilliant. Yeah, my predecessors have been super smart people. Okay. Um, and I know the world had moved on five or 10 years. Things don't often change, that the fundamentals don't often change, why a business is good at what it's good at, what it needs to do. These things don't shift fast. And so you're right, I probably should reflect on that a bit more and do less new things and more reframing of what we've already done. We've talked about curiosity and context. What else? Uh, I think the third one for me would be about clarity and, and clarity of, of purpose. I mean, jobs, often big jobs, are really multifaceted. So there are many things you could choose to do. And so I would say I've been most impactful when I've thought much harder about what I really am going to focus on and what 
I want my impact to be inside the organization. Also to think about um, where your power resides in the organization. And it's often not what people, where people think it is. It's not about the number of people you've got or the amount of budget that you've got. Often roles have got unique power inside the organization. Can you give um, an example of that? Yeah, so well, for example, in my, my role at the BBC is a new role. Um, we put together a number of things. Um, and it's quite interesting when I reflect on the job description of what the organization thought they wanted me to do. Some of the things in particular I've chosen to focus on are not with the job description. Um, and I think it's a combination of, of, of me coming in thinking about what can I uniquely bring, but also what does my role uniquely bring? I'm one of the few people inside the BBC that connects everything. So I'm a portfolio person. Many people inside the BBC are quite understandably linked to news or TV video or to the audio organization or, or to technology. And I kind of span everything. So that's relatively unique that I have the insight and I exist to make everything work. So I have a unique role in being a portfolio person. I'm also, of course, the audience person inside the business, the customer person inside the business. But the great thing about my new role is we've put together in the BBC, the license fee unit, which are essentially people that pay for the BBC um, and the audiences. So the consumers of the BBC and those two teams have never really worked together before. One was a finance function. One was a audience insight function. Yeah. And actually putting those things together, it gave me this unique insight into what people really want to pay for and how it links to kind of consumption. And so I've chosen to focus on some slightly different things. And I've sort of crafted my role as a customer value creator. You know, yeah. I'm here and can uniquely help this organization really understand what customer value means and how to create it. And I'm in a portfolio unlocker. Because I exist across the portfolio, I can help us unlock the thing that actually makes us unique. And it's the multimedia nature of the BBC and put that to work for audiences. So it's about clarity of choosing where you want to make the mark in the organisation and then following that through quite relentlessly and um, in single mindedly and trying not to get too distracted by all the other facets of the role that need to be done. Because if I don't get this right, or if I do get this right, the impact could be fantastic on the organization. I could unlock very much and say absolute clarity about where your power resides and how you can really have impact. And then being a bit more single-minded on focusing on that at the expense of some other things, which won't please everybody, uh, but means you could actually maybe get something done. So it's as much about what you stop. I remember us doing sessions, uh, you know, what do we start, what do we stop, and what do we continue? And, and the stop part is often the hardest to, 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 really, uh, to really say, no, we're not going to do this. Can you, can you give me one or two examples of things that at the BBC you, didn't, you chose explicitly not to do, although they might have been part of the brief? It's a good question. I probably have rather than stopped is where I've put my time and energy and what I've not chosen to be focused for. So I guess um, on the marketing communication side, so chief customer officer and I run marketing and I think people know my background will think, well, you're going to spend your center of gravity thinking about brand and positioning and kind of marketing, but all of that, that the brand exists at the purpose of customers and to create value for customers. And so I've sort of in a way decided that I will do some of those things in a secondary way or with a different trajectory, because if I can't help the organization understand how to understand what value looks like for customers and how to focus on which things to do to create it, nothing else will really kind of matter. So I probably have downgraded some of the aspects of the role that people thought I would come in to do and focus on some of the others, I guess. So. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's also courageous because it's safer to play in the area where you've proven yourself many times over. So we've talked about curiosity, context, clarity, all Cs. We're not going to a 5C model, right? <laughs> no, I tried. <laughs> I tried to do the 5Cs. This one is a C and it's about creative storytelling. And I think, but very much focused inside the organization and as marketers 
quite rightly, and I probably spent the first 20 years of my career thinking my job really existed to create value for customers and to spend all my energy on how to grow outside, how to grow with customers outside of the organization. Um, and I think there was a pivotal moment in my career when I kind of really learned there's massive power in inspiring inside an organization and marketing can have a phenomenal role inside an organization. Um, and that was when um, I was working with Tex Gunning who came new in to be the CEO of Axena Bell from Unilever. And he taught, he could see that uh, something we were doing inside my team could have power way beyond that which we had created it for. So we were working on how to build a really powerful story for the Dulux brand. It was very customer focused, um, an idea for the brand that was around sort of adding color to people's lives. And we were really excited about it because it was a very purposeful, powerful idea that we knew through our communications work was really connecting with customers and was really starting to show the signs of showing growth inside the business. What Tex did is he could see his job was he was bringing together two organizations with merged, well, actually, Axonavel had bought ICR. He had two big teams to come together at the time of the financial crisis. This is in 2008 when the world was imploding. He could see his job was how did he inspire ignite a spirit inside the organization? How could he build a connection inside the organization? And so he was turning this idea inside and said, it's wonderful that we can grow outside. I can see that if we can connect inside the organization, we can unlock something and, and bring this organization together. So, and he showed me how to do that. We started working inside the organization with teams on what it meant for us. How did we want to work? We painted our offices. We we sort of just connected ourselves back to why we existed. Um, yep. And it was shocking, surprising. You think, well, how naive of me not to realize the energy that could get created inside the organization, particularly because we were two companies coming together, yeah. suddenly were reigniting behind why we existed. And it was a massive learning for me that I think has stood with me for the rest of my career since 2008. Couldn't agree more. I looked up the Let's Color project because the purpose was adding color to people's lives. We worked on that together. And, uh, and the Let's Color project, which reports the societal impact of adding color to people's lives, is still live and, and has affected eight, more than 82 million people. Let'scolorproject.com uh, deserves a shout out. And, <laughs> and to add to um, your internal storytelling, it goes further. Because when, as a consultant at the time, Effective Brands, we we'd worked for quite some time, quite a few of my colleagues were involved. And when we existed 10 years, we invited all our employees to come together in Rio de Janeiro, uh, assistance included. And we actually worked with the Dulux team on regenerating and repainting the favela Santa Marta. And that was a, a pacified uh, favela. And, and actually, I also remember standing, you know, shoulder to shoulder with this, this youngster Brazilian boy who, who had handed in his gun, uh, left gang life and was trained to become a painter. And, uh, and when, we, when we closed shop, when we, when we uh, sold Effective Brands and we had a closing party, more than half the people wrote stories about how incredibly motivating. And that's just for the consultant, let alone it's your own company. So, yeah, I think that's a, that was a very special one. Can I just pop in before we go to your last uh, recipe uh, elements? What was the best resurrected marketing brief you uncovered? It would be very much in that British Airways example. It was, it was actually Jill McDonald, um, who had been the former marketing director of British Airways, um, incredibly smart went on uh, to be the CMO of McDonald's and CEO of McDonald's, not because it's the name. She had done some, um, I think, sort of positioning work um, on British Airways. Um, and this was the example of where actually a consultant said to me, oh, we did a really great piece of work with Jill. Have you seen it? And no one in the organization could put their hands on it and say, I got it sent back to me inside, out from outside inside the organization. It was Unsurprisingly, it was a really good piece of work. It was, it was, um, it was, it was done really well. It's very thoughtful. It taken some time, um, 
and we were just eight years on and a few things had shifted and we just updated it we looked at it through slightly different lens but it saved me probably five months six months ton of money um and as I say it's one of those when I talked to the organization about the work that we were doing and said I took this work some of you might remember Jules' work, a few people, senior people in the work said, I always thought that was really good and I was disappointed we didn't act on it. It was one of those things I talked about where just not being the smart ass that comes in from the outside and says, I can tell you the answers, but saying, you have the answers, how can we do something with this? So yeah. well, I would say it's that British Airways positioning work that, that Jill had done um, that we refreshed um, added a bit more uh, context to it. And if, um, as I say, life had moved What's on. the positioning? What was the positioning statement? Oh, What's I'm not going to talk about that. that. <laughs> okay. I can't remember exactly, but I think um, where we sort of took it to was ultimately uh, saying, look, um, British Airways exists to just make flying feel a bit more special. But in particular, not just special for the special ones. I think British Airways quite naturally had gone where the revenue was and if you were a club card flyer a gold card gold card holder flying in club you're very valuable I think one of the things we help the organization see is whole customers your gold card holder on business is a premium economy flyer or an economy flyer when they're on holiday and you're treating them very differently but you could if you've got insight into the customer make them feel special when they're with the family flying an economy, not just when they happen to be flying in that, that gold cup. So it was a bit about how could you with the data, and in fact, we sort of said, look, well, the unique thing we can do is connect data together to help the service, everyone serving customers know a little bit more about customers and make everybody feel a little bit more special. And I think, it, I, I don't know quite where that went, but I, I know it sparked off, quite some big programs inside British Airways but um, it was it was uh, some of it was founded on the insights some of the insights at least from, from Jill's work. You almost sound like a consultant that you put five C's together. <laughs> My fifth C is about delivery. <laughs> the C of delivery. I love it. Delivery, uh, delivery on commitments I don't know I, I tried I failed. In all of those things I think the one thing uh, is like I just don't ever forget to deliver. <laughs> a lot of lives, particularly in big jobs, are framing, our strategy creation, and it's just deliver. And there's two elements to that for me. One is deliver on what you say you're going to do for people and deliver results for the business. And, and just don't lose sight of that. Uh, if you don't deliver, you don't really have a right to exist, I think, uh, and just focus on delivering. But I think also delivering on commitments. And I remember quite early on in my life in the BBC uh, with one of my peers, some work in my team wasn't going very well. And I remember getting a phone call, quite a difficult phone call from a very senior person uh, who was very challenging of me. And I didn't quite understand everything that was going on, but I just remember saying, I'll sort it, you don't know me very well. You just need to trust me, I will deliver for you. And I was being quite challenged on some things that I didn't think were quite right. And I just remember saying, you don't know me, but I will deliver for you. I will sort this and we will deliver. Uh, that's what you need to kind of know about me. And luckily, took a bit of time. We solved it. We sorted it. The work became really, really good and we delivered. But uh, it was just something I, I need in the early days. Who knows whether I'm going to deliver, right? Just because you've done it in the past doesn't mean to say that you can be successful in the future. But it was important to me, I think, that it was a, a peer of mine that they could trust me to deliver. Uh, and I would sort this thing for them. That sort of mattered to me. And I think it's uh, stood me in good stead and something I try not to forget. Is what you're saying maybe also a little bit about how you enter, how you start, that, that you start with the end in mind, uh, to, to quote Covey um, uh, again, um, mm. so that, that you have the delivery, the, the, the sense of urgency to, to actually deliver on, on what you promised right from the get-go. Is, is that also what you're saying? I think it, yes, I think that's probably right, Frank. And I think it it comes from not by design necessarily, but being a bit of a serial CMO, right? So I've made uh, the first 20 years of my career were very stable, 10 years with Unilever, 10 years with the paint businesses. Um, and then I've uh, had a number of changes. And as I say, mostly by design, but not always. Life happens, right? And you find yourself in a different circumstance. 
And I think when you're in a new organization and you've been hired and you're in a big job, you've got to, you've got to deliver and you've got to deliver some stuff quite fast. And so I think some of that delivery focus also comes out of you know, knowing that uh, people are relying on you to bring about a change um, and you better do something to deliver it. And I think having experienced that change being hired into big organisations with big challenges at a senior level, it does bring it into a stark reality for you that you've got a job to do and you have, you've got to deliver for that organisation. I've often been brought in because something needs to change, something has to happen, either teams are coming together or something's not quite working. And so um, there's really, you know, you've, you've got to, to show some, some improvement and show some change. But I just think it's also maybe it comes from my insecurity but I'm always worried that I'll get fired. So better get some results, right? How do you inspire that with others? How do you make teams, colleagues, horizontal, vertically, wherever, encouraged to, to adopt that same mindset and behavior? That's a very good question. I think I've said a couple of things that sort of spring to mind. Teams learn from how you behave, right? Obvious things. So if you spend more time asking questions Exactly. than giving answers yeah. and encourage them. You know, people sort of, I think, certainly see that maybe you enjoy thinking about the questions, thinking about the problems. And if I'm, if they, if, if being in a meeting with me means I'm going to ask lots of questions, then you start to realise that you need to sort of go out there and maybe think in that way. So maybe something I think is, is the way you behave with your teams, I think being sort of very explicit and I think I often talk with my teams quite early on about what matters to me what I value what I think matters and just encourage people to to ask more questions than try and think about always having smart answers at some point you do need to have some answers so maybe just the way you are with teams and role modeling with teams yeah, yeah um, I agree I think it's 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 almost like Again, the analog with parenting, where a lot of parents think that they really focus on what they say to, to their children. And I think in the end, it's 10 times more important how you behave because yeah. children could be you. And, and, and it's not very different to our working situation. Yeah. If you're a leader of a large team, they look at how you behave and they, they copy that. I couldn't agree more with that. Answer. I think within, within my peers, so um, I'm working with some pretty powerful people in the BBC, Charlotte Moore, who now runs the whole of television and audio. I was working with James Pennell, who was working in audio. Fran Unsworth, who runs the whole of BBC News. These are very big, powerful people that got a lot on their plate. And uh, actually, just some very obvious, simple things. We've been running some incredible audience connection sessions uh, where we set the foundation. So we don't pretend we don't know anything. We know a lot about our audiences, but then we actually in a COVID world have been doing a lot of virtual in-person sessions. So where we connect with audiences and the great thing is you can connect with audiences across the country in one session uh, as opposed to the logistics of focus groups. We've been running lots and lots of connection sessions with senior people, just sort of saying, Let's talk about this. We, you know, this is where the audience is. And it's just opened eyes, I think, for some of the senior people about how they need to connect with their audiences in a slightly different way. So I think just um, helping people connect with the customer, connect with the audience, giving them opportunities to do that. Even if it, you know, sometimes it plays against you think, well, we know all these answers, right? And my team's got all this insight. But just hearing it, just connecting with it firsthand is, is, is difficult to replace. So that's maybe one of the other things that I would recommend. No, I, I totally read. So indeed, rather than, because you could have given all those answers to <laughs> all these insights. And again, I think it's about demonstrating and, and, and listening rather than telling. So you listen to the audiences. I was intrigued about your title, the chief customer officer. And, and you've undoubtedly, I know that, watched the marketing space and You've seen chief communication or people did that brand and then called themselves CMO. Uh, then a lot of CMOs got either promoted or replaced by chief growth officers. We've had chief experience officers. You're a chief customer officer. What is this telling us about, about marketing and what do you believe in that is good and what, what, should, what needs change? I think that, I mean, the, the, one of the reasons I was really excited um, to take on this role at the BBC was because 
it actually was actually ironically for an organization that some people don't think has customers, right? So, because um, everyone has to pay uh, to be a chief customer officer, it was putting together a number of different functions. And that was, that was actually very exciting for me because ultimately um, you want to be driving growth, right? So what's interesting for me is growing things. <laughs> if I had to say, what are you? It's like, I like growing things. Uh, I like- You should have been called the chief growth officer. <laughs> So, yeah, so it's growing things um, and it's, you know, but very much, you know, customers, audiences at the heart and sort of value creation and then helping organisations not just understand what customer value means to them, but working out what they can really do that can shift the needle on the dial. That was what was interesting for me about the opportunity at the BBC. That's why I've chosen to focus on some of the things that I'm focusing on. And I think that's what unifies most of those roles is um, when your role is a uh, customer value creator and a grower of things, you a, a growth driver. Um, I think that's what um, unites the best of those roles, are, are the people that are at the heart of the organisation. You have unique perspective of the outside in, but not only that, you often can look inside the organization and work out how to connect the inside with the outside. And I think it's that outside and the inside on the outside that makes these roles when they're crafted well, or when you can craft them well yourself. Yeah. Uh, so powerful, you are the outside into the organization. But what matters to me is understanding the levers inside the organization that you can unlock to connect them to that growth opportunity. And those are the roles that I think are what organisations need, not just um, too narrow. If it's too narrow that you can't be strategically helping the organisation unlock the value, I think that's when they become narrow and less uh, impactful. So I don't know if that quite answers the question, but that's... Uh... No, no, so what you're saying, it's not so much about a title, it's really about the scope and, yeah. and the breadth of, of, of your focus and your role to drive ultimately drive growth. Yes, yes. And, and to, for me, is to, to shape and craft the role such that you unambiguously understand what customer value looks and feels like. And the BBC is it's quite unique. But how you understand the levers inside the organisation and connect those that make products or make services to those levers so that you can really, really drive growth. That's what's interesting for me. And in the BBC, my role looks after the license unit. I'm the revenue generator. My team brings in the revenue, <laughs> the, the 3.9 billion pounds that comes from the license fee. My team bring it in. That matters to me actually, because I'm a I can be a revenue person as well as an audience and, and marketing person. So it, it gives me an insight into where the revenue comes from and why people pay. And if they aren't sure about paying, what you need, you need to do to solve it. And I think that revenue connection really really helps and that's one of the reasons why I was really excited about this role at the BBC I'm commercially I'm a commercial person in, in a public service organization but connecting to uh you know the money won't flow if customers don't value you and I think that's really what uh, I'm interested in in helping organizations understand and so so great I, I really like that answer I want to link it to a question that I was not going to share because because we agreed we wouldn't talk too much about politics. That's very BBC specific and maybe less of interest to the, to the audience. But uh, Greg Maudsley asks why he says, you know, the BBC has come under constant attack from Mr. Cummings. What's that mean for your role? And again, I'm less interested in, in, in let's say the political side of the answer, but more the managerial side, the, the leadership side of this answer. I think it's not just my role, it's actually all of us in the BBC. And I think it's really simple we exist to create public value. We exist for the audience. And the moment we lose sight of that and are distracted by other things, the moment we don't deserve to kind of have the mandate that we have, we exist and Tim Davey, our new director general, with us as the cross exit, we're very clear on this, we exist to create value for all. We believe in the principle of universality and our focus has got to be on creating value. And if we do our job, make amazing things, deliver impartial news. If we do our job, we'll be fine. And if we don't, we won't. And yeah. so everything else in a way, yes, people need to manage that, but it can be noise. And I think it's it, if you get distracted by that noise, 
we don't have an inalienable right to exist. We only exist if we're delivering on our public purposes. And so in a way, part of my job in this context is just to help the organization navigate the noise and say, keep the eye on the prize, keep the eye on the prize. We've got job to do. We have to, we've got some real challenges with audiences. We understand those. We can help create more value for audiences. Keep focused on that. So my job is just to make sure we know what we need to do and we keep focused on it and support others. There are you know, many stakeholders in all organisations. It won't just be the BBC. So in any organisation, there are many stakeholders. And actually, as a storyteller, we can help those that are connecting with all of those stakeholders understand, well, how is what we do going to help that stakeholder's needs and interests? So I can help tell the story powerfully to different stakeholders, but the story is really about how we are going to create more value for customers and serve audiences so that we continue to exist and people want to pay want to pay for us. So just help distracting from, from some of the noise. We called our institute the Institute for Real Growth, and we have a clear vision on what we believe real growth is. How do you define growth? As you say, it, it depends on probably the organisation that you're in at the time. For us inside the BBC, what I'm trying to do inside the BBC is unlike every other business I've ever worked in, <laughs> we exist for all. You know, one that, you know, the strategy is like you can't be all things to all people. Choose your battles, choose to focus and really make sure you deliver on certain audiences. It's very interesting working for an organisation that exists for everybody. We have to create value for everybody. And so what I've chose to focus on is you actually can't be all things to all people, but we need to be enough to all people. We have to create enough value for all people. Not everything, but enough value for all people. And so inside the BBC, my job is, how do you understand what enough value looks like? We actually can do that. We can do that. What's really clever cross-media measurements. We, we can tell what actually constitutes behaviour of the BBC that people think we're of value to them. And then decodify that, codify that, and then help the organisation work out really what to focus on that's going to help more people get enough value from the BBC. So inside the BBC, growing is actually taking audiences that get value, but maybe not enough today. And I want to really get them so they feel they've got enough value from the BBC and they support us and they want to pay for us. So for me, it's growth is in those audiences that don't get quite enough today and trying to make sure that enough of them get more value in the future. That's what growth looks like inside the BBC. Our definition of real growth or more humanized growth is delivering value for all stakeholders for the long term, rather than short term focus on only shareholder value creation. And I was just thinking, you know, when first time I met you at at Julux, you were actually already doing that. You were creating value for your colleagues, for customers also for the communities, just thinking of that favela in, in, in Rio and many others. I saw there were now more than 2,200 projects have been delivered of creating value for communities uh, over all these years and, <laughs> and for shareholders because stock price did go up. And so in a funny way, you're doing exactly the same at the BBC in a wildly different context. <laughs> what, what's your perspective on changes when it comes to more humanized growth, to value creation for all stakeholders over the long term? The current context is providing a really interesting challenge to organizations on colleagues. And what's the deal that you have with your colleagues on I guess, why they want to be part of your organisation. And so I would say maybe one of the shifts, and it it links back to some of the things I've talked about earlier, is, of course, focus on customers and how we grow with customers. But in this changing dynamic is what does it mean to work inside the organisation? And why is this an organisation that I want to commit my precious time and energy to? And I think particularly with the changing ways in which we are working, the opportunities that that creates, some of the challenges that creates for people, I would say maybe there may be an opportunity and a bit more of a shift to think about internal stakeholders, to think about colleagues and teams inside the organisation. And as 
we all probably are like reconnecting that what does good work look like what does a productive valuable working life look like and how can we create more flexibility like many for those of us that have had the opportunity and privilege of working in a very flexible way because not everyone does many we often forget you know 15% of our organization we've got to keep broadcasting they are in buildings they're working the majority of the UK 54% of the UK country people are going to work we can often think as senior leaders that the whole world has a life like this where we're, we're in bedrooms and offices but they don't but it gives us an opportunity, I think, to think about what a new contract might look like inside an organisation for valuable work, flexible work, uh, kind of meaningful work. So I guess that's that's a, probably what might change in the future as a result of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Or I hope it does. Yeah, what, what, what I've noticed, if, if, so in that definition, we look at colleagues, consumers, communities, and capital markets, the four C's, yeah. <laughs> unlike your five C's. But, uh, but anyway, so, so COVID has, I think, brought an enormous shift of focus from pre-COVID, mainly at consumers or customers and capital markets. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden colleagues in the communities that we operate in but uh, interestingly, I, I just got a comment that I want to quote because I really like it. It's just growth is becoming a bad word, at least in the U.S. among younger people. I really like enough value for all people as a great, mm. as, a, as a modern definition of growth. Uh, hey, um, we've got one minute left. Um, mm. and, and I want to use that last minute uh, for a very short answer to the question, is there... Any recommendation, that, uh, any message that you want to share with this, this audience of senior leaders before we go? There's two things I've thought about. One is you asked me a question about how I've been growing as a leader. As I reflected on that, I thought I've grown most when I've put myself out of my comfort zone, when I've taken on new big jobs. So I would encourage everyone, the only way you grow your comfort zone is to get out of it. So get a bit uncomfortable. Uh, in the long run, it's worth it. And then the second thing is, I think the job of a leader often is to make sure the reality is really understood and then you create hope. And if I've seen things that are really connecting inside some of the work that I'm doing is when we say, this is what's going on. You, you, you can sometimes define a problem, but you then give an organization hope that we can solve it. And that don't lose the sight of the energy that comes from creating hope inside an organization and I think right now we all need a bit of hope so I would say reality and hope big big jobs of leaders well that's that's fantastic that's a that's a beautiful close to what I found an extremely inspiring and engaging hour I really want to thank you for that thank you very much and thank see you Brad, and thank you everyone for listening thank you bye-bye